are pre-K and kindergartners to Kids Connection now. If they're not already headed that way, they can go that way out the back doors uh, at this time. Turn to Titus chapter 3 if you're not there already. I grew up about 10 minutes from Claremore, Oklahoma, in between Owasso and Claremore, sort of in the northeast part of the state. And as you probably know, Claremore is home to Oklahoma's favorite son, that being Will Rogers. His memorial is there. We actually took our kids there for the first time this summer. That was a place I went all the time as a child, so it was cool to get them over there. And anyway, Will Rogers, if you're not from Oklahoma, he was part cowboy and part movie star, part newspaper columnist, part pundit. If you've ever flown into our airport in Oklahoma City, it's named after Will Rogers. Ironically, he died in a plane crash. But anyway, his ability to turn a phrase is pretty much unprecedented. He wasn't a mere comedian, the way we think of comedians today. He's called a humorist, whatever that may be. And here are some of his wittier one-liners. He said, the trouble with practical jokes is that very often they get elected. (laughs) The difference between death and taxes is death doesn't get worse every time Congress meets. You know horses are smarter than people? You never heard of a horse getting, uh, going broke betting on people. He said, I'm not a member of any organized political party. I'm a Democrat. He said, the income tax has made more liars out of the American people than golf has. If pro is the opposite of con... What is the opposite of Congress? Progress. Now you, okay, it's hitting you. He said, be thankful we're not getting all the government that we're paying for. What the country needs is dirtier fingernails and cleaner minds. The minute you read something that you can't understand, you can almost be sure that it was drawn up by a lawyer. And two of his most famous, it is better for someone to think you're a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. And then my favorite, I don't tell jokes, I just watch the government and report the facts. (laughs) Most of those quotations are about politics and government. That's chiefly what Rogers commented on. It's, it's chiefly on everybody's mind in our day as well. We have all these candidates and who to vote for and the percentages and who's ahead in the polls and whether or not the polls matter and who can actually win in the end. And I'm not one who likes to talk politics too much, particularly from the pulpit, so you won't hear me give any direction on who you should vote for this spring and, and then next fall. But remember, when Jesus, in Matthew 24, when, when the scene is described where he is separating the sheep from the goats... The sheep are on the right, and the goats are on the left. Just remember that, okay? (laughs) Ecclesiastes 10.2 actually instructs you how you should vote. I don't know if you knew that or not. It does. The wisdom of Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 10, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. All right? And that's enough of that. I won't go any further. All right, we only have three more sermons left in our study of the book of Titus, and so today we start chapter 3. And by way of quick quick review, going back to chapter 1, chapter 1 is largely about church organization, how the church is to order itself so that it can teach sound doctrine, 
so that it can rebuke false doctrine and then promote good works in the lives of its members. That was chapter 1. Chapter 2 moves from church organization to Christian obligation, which is how those who have responded to the gospel, how they are to live and relate to one another in the church and in the home. Lots of instruction given by Paul in those areas. Chapter 3 stays within that theme of Christian obligation, but the, the influence widens. In chapter 3, Paul exhorts Titus to remind the Christians in Crete that how they conduct themselves in the public square is also very important. How they behave civically is a big deal. They aren't to leave their convictions in the home. They're not to leave their convictions, their convictions at the gathering of the church. No, they have a civic responsibility. They are to be good citizens. And if they are committed to living the way Paul instructs, it will cause them to stand out, and therefore they will have a profound influence on their culture. You see, it's impossible for Paul not to think about the church's impact on the world around it. Paul has a missionary mindset, and what that means in these verses is if Christians live lives guided by the Holy Spirit— if they commit themselves to certain countercultural attitudes, then the church will have an impact on whatever culture God has placed it. But the church Paul is writing to, as he's writing to Titus, it is the church or the churches that are located on the island of Crete. This countercultural command was of immense importance because, as I've shared with you several times, Crete was a beautiful place but it was filled with just awful people. It's interesting, as I've been talking to some of you about our study, several people in our church have visited Crete. They have visited Crete. The Calivuses have gone several times and confirmed, yes, it is a beautiful place, but yeah, the people there, <laughs> be careful. Watch your back. Um, it, they're, they're, they fit these descriptions that Paul has laid out almost to a T. Polybius Polybius was a Cretan historian. He said, It was almost impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. Cicero, another historian, said, In Crete, piracy was honorable. It was a place where dishonesty was expected, where, where drunkenness was celebrated, where stealing was not disgraceful really at all. So to a church in that context, Paul wrote these Spirit-inspired words. We're just going to read the first three verses this morning. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. This is God's word. So chapter 3 starts with a call there to remember. Verse 1 says, remind them. And the present tense of that verb is one that expresses continuous action. So more accurately, verse 1 says, don't stop reminding them. 
which is a big part of any pastor's public ministry. The pastor is to spend a great deal of time reminding people of what they already know. At one point in Martin Luther's pastoral ministry, a concerned parishioner came to him and and asked why he kept preaching the same gospel message every single week. They knew his reputation. They knew he was a scholar. They they were frustrated. They, They wanted new material. And I love what Luther said to this parishioner. He said, I preach the gospel message every week because every week you need to hear it. Each Sunday you walk in here looking like people who don't believe the gospel. Hmm. The call to remember is a repeated one in Scripture. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy is basically a long sermon from Moses telling the Israelites to remember. Fourteen times the word remember is used in Deuteronomy. Another nine times the phrase do not forget is used. Do not forget what God has done. Remember the Lord's faithfulness. Remember his commands. Remember. That's what Paul is doing here telling Titus to remind them. And so this morning, we're going to look at, at, at different ways that Paul is calling these people, calling Titus to remind the people in the churches of Crete. There are, there are two ways. One, first, remember your duty. That's verses one and two. Remember your duty. And then second, remember your depravity. That's verse three. All right, so remember your duty. In verses 1 and 2, we read seven qualities or seven virtues of the model Christian citizen. First, it says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. This, this duty pertains to one's attitude and conduct toward government. And notice, Paul doesn't specify what, specify what kind of government they're to submit to, nor does he specify what level of government official they must submit to. He just says, be submissive. Be submissive to rulers and authorities. And and this was important for for the Christians on Crete for a couple of reasons. One, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, that was a treasonous statement in the Roman Empire. It was and is an absolutely true statement. And any real Christian must confess it. But in in the Roman Empire, only Caesar was to be called Lord. The emperor was the one who had all authority. The emperor was even seen as divine. So the reminder being given here is, even though we say Jesus Christ is Lord, and even though he is our ultimate authority, that doesn't exempt us from submitting to our governing authority. Even though we are citizens of his kingdom and citizens of heaven and that blessed hope that we share that he's coming back and he's going to call us to himself and, 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 and we will, will go with him. Even though all of that is true, we still must submit as citizens to this, these earthly kingdoms that we find ourselves in. The second reason this was a good reminder for the Cretans is, is because of their inherent character. The Cretans were not submissive people. They were rank and rebellious people. Polybius, again, who I've quoted almost every week of our study, he, he, he noted how the Cretans repeatedly int- attempted insurrections against their government. They were not submissive. I, I found this interesting also. I read this week in World War II, the Nazis, the Nazis, along with Italy, they tried to take the island of Crete, but they could not subdue the Cretans. They couldn't take it. 
They tried for four years, from 41 to 45, but eventually they just gave up. The, the, the Cretans were impossible to subdue. They have never been a people who would be easily ruled. In Romans chapter 13, Paul, Paul expounds on this command to submit to ruling authorities. And if you've read that, you, you know that the, the reason he gives in that letter to submit is because all ruling authorities are ordained by God. Earthly authorities have power, but it is power God has allowed them to have. Therefore, submission to governing authorities is by extension submitting to God. I'll, I'll just read Romans, that, that, that passage with you. Romans 13, 1 through, oh, I'll read about through verse 6. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For the same reason you also pay your taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. And so when functioning properly, as you know, as really Paul laid out here in Romans 13, governments are to promote good. They're to, pu- to, to, to punish evil. They're to keep order and serve the general welfare of the people. You see, and you may argue with me here, but government is a gift of God's common grace. It is. Society needs to be governed because lawlessness ends in anarchy. Human beings, being sinners, we, we must be governed. To deny this is to, de, is to deny the manner with which God has created the world to operate. So this idea of submission to authority, this is actually pretty easy in a society like ours. In a society where we elect our officials and we have a democratic process and, and we may grumble and, and gripe, but, but ours is a country where we are allowed to be very active in how we are governed, which is a very rare thing in human history. The Roman government of the first century, however, the government under which the early church lived, not only was it thoroughly pagan and, and, and morally debauched, which ours may also be, but it was also oppressive. It was unjust. It was, it was brutal. The emperor at the time that Paul wrote this letter, it would have been Nero. And, and Nero didn't start out persecuting Christians. He would become very famous for that. But he didn't start his reign doing this. But, but he was always sort of a maniac. His actions were diabolical. The historian Suetonius, in his volume, The Twelve Emperors, he has some, his, some just horrific stories regarding Nero, and I've shared some of them uh, with you before. One that I haven't is that, that Nero, when he was emperor, he would sneak out at night. He would get in disguise. Perhaps he'd wear a wig or some other things, and he would lurk through the back alleys of Rome. He would sneak up on people, and he would murder them. He would just stab them for fun. 
He had his own mother killed. He had his aunt killed. He had a young boy named Sporus. He had him castrated, and then he married him. He had him wear a, a wedding gown. He paid him a dowry. That's the ruler that these people had over them in the first century. So when you say, man, I don't really approve of the president, or I, I don't like the way the state spends my tax dollars, think about what they were dealing with in the first century. They were dealing with a, a despot like Nero. And yet even Jesus, even Jesus commanded the paying of taxes to Rome, didn't he? He did. You can read that in Matthew chapter 22. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. The Bible makes clear that the Christian's obligation is to respect and obey human government. And it does not rest upon government being Christian. It does not rest on government being democratic or or even just. It's based solely on it being the God-ordained means by which human society is regulated. On the other hand, if subjecting ourselves, if that results in performing some action which contradicts the clear teaching of Scripture, then we are to obey God, not government. We're to obey God, not government. If government comes up against and forces us to disobey Scripture, we are to bow not to government, but to keep our allegiance to God, which brings us to really the second virtue there in the text. Be obedient. Be obedient. The Christians in Rome were not persecuted by Nero until they refused to burn incense. And the reason why that was important is the burning of the incense was an act of worship to the emperor. They wouldn't do it. They wouldn't do it because it would be disobedient to God. And much like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before them, much like Daniel before them, they didn't bow. They didn't worship in a pagan way, and so they were persecuted. In Acts chapter 4, the Sanhedrin ordered Peter and John not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The Sanhedrin was this ruling authority of the Jews, and the apostles that replied to their command, we cannot stop speaking what we have seen and heard. They did not obey the authorities because it was contrary to what Jesus had told them to do. They obeyed him. And one question that always comes up within this discussion, it's a really good question actually, is what about the American Revolution? Was the behavior that led to this nation's independence, was it obedient to this command or not? And I'll just say a few things surrounding that. There are, there are several views that people in the colonies at that time would have held, all mostly related to the views of the churches that they were a part of. One view would have been called the divine right of kings. The divine right of kings. Whoever is ruling you, submit no matter what. And there may be some flexibility with the lesser magistrates, but really the divine right of kings was sort of this ultimate submission. Another view would have said, We are to support government in general, but it's okay to overthrow a particular government that fails to promote good and act justly. So a government that that fails to live up to what God designed, that government needs to be replaced. It's a view that says we we want to replace bad government with good government. We we don't want anarchy, anarchy. We don't want no government because we agree with God. Government is a good thing, but not when it's oppressive. 
When it's oppressive, then it needs to be replaced. Many Christians hold this view, including a hero of mine, John Stott, holds this view. Then there's another view that says what led to our nation's independence. It was not a revolution. It was actually labeled that later, not at the time. In reality, the colonists were just defending themselves. The British attacked first, and so then they acted in defense. And there are some other views as well. But whatever view is held, what has to be remembered is the founding fathers were not seeking to establish a country free from governmental authority. That's what distinguishes the American Revolution from, say, the French Revolution. The French wanted freedom from tyranny, but they really wanted nothing in place of it. This country's founders knew that, that true liberty required governmental authority, and that's why our Declaration of Independence and later our Constitution are written the way they are. These documents were established and they were ratified by men who valued freedom, but they also valued laws making it no coincidence that many of them were believers, were Christians. John Adams, our second president, he wrote, Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. I think we're seeing that to be true today. The third virtue these Christians are reminded to exhibit is that they are to be ready for every good work. Paul's not speaking of of reluctantly doing what we know we should do in society. He's speaking of willingly and sincerely being ready and prepared to perform every good deed toward the people around us. A readiness to serve your common man. He's referring to a sincere, loving eagerness to serve others. So no matter how hostile the society around us may get, the people whose lives interact with ours, they are to be impacted by our goodness, by our generosity, by our tenderness, by our care, by our thoughtfulness. That manner of life will be in direct contrast then with the false teachers who are in Crete. Remember chapter 1, Paul said that these false teachers, they are men who profess to know God but deny, them by their, deny him by their deeds. They're detestable, disobedient. They are unfit for what? Unfit for every or any good work. We are to be ready for every good work. That's opposite of these false, false teachers that Paul describes in Crete who were unfit for any good work. Now we move into verse 2. And as I read this and as I studied these verses this week, I, I couldn't help but be thinking about some of the scenes that were coming out of the college campuses. These protests and these safe zones and these oustings of, of, of presidents and administrative officials in these universities and the actions of these undergraduates. You'll see here as we go through this. We are to speak evil of no one. This is a word similar to blaspheme being used here. But it's not in relation to God, it's in relation to other people. This is not just speaking evil, but reviling or slandering others. When used of conduct from one person toward another, it it always involves the exercise of a bitter spirit, of malicious intent. So it's it's not just talking bad about people, but it's wanting to do them harm by what you say of them. Speak evil of no one. I'm not sure if Paul was writing about political posts on Facebook or not, but I, but I think we might be able to find some application here. I don't know. 
We're not to find ourselves speaking evil of our authorities. And there are plenty of people that do that. There's an endless feedback loop of that in our culture. Rather, we are to be people who find ourselves praying for those in authority. Write down 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, I'll read that to you. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. If we're not to be speaking evil, we, we are to be praying faithfully for the good of those in authority and, and for all people who are around us. Or to avoid quarreling. The believer is to be a peaceable person. This is one of the qualifications of an elder in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It just means friendly and peaceful toward the lost rather than contentious and belligerent and angry with them. In an ungodly and immoral society, it's easy to become angry with those who corrupt it. It's easy to immediately get combative, to, to send that letter to the editor or, or comment on that post or, or get involved with that inner office debate. But as Christian people, we must know that, it, that it's silly to get hostile toward an unbeliever when all they're doing is acting like an unbeliever. What are you expecting them to act like? Are you expecting unbelievers to act and think and have the convictions of someone who loves Jesus Christ? They won't. They can't. Paul then says to be gentle. The idea behind that word is is yielding or kind. It would indicate a willingness to yield what what we might consider to be our rights. We recognize that we are fallible people living amongst other fallible, imperfect people. Thus, we demonstrate tolerance even when we are wronged. We don't loudly demand justice. William Barclay writes, that being gentle or, or uncontentious, it, it does not mean that the good citizen will not stand for the principles which he believes to be right, but that he will never be so opinionated as to believe that no other way than his own is right. He will allow, uh, he will allow to others the same right to have their convictions as he claims for himself to have his own. One writer calls this a sweet reasonableness. So not cantankerous, not argumentative, not angry, not hostile, sweetly reasonable, graciously kind, gentle. So really the opposite of what you would be in a crowded store on Black Friday, right? Reasonable, gracious, kind, gentle. Then showing perfect courtesy toward all people. The, the, the idea expressed here is that we are to be people of, of humility, consideration, meekness. There's to be no harshness or or arrogance on the part of believers. Any attitude of superiority or or pride is completely out of place in the life of those who have been saved by God's grace. We should ooze humility. Then that phrase there, we're to do this toward all people, toward all men. And this here, this is the difficult part, isn't it? This is to be how we interact with everyone. This includes, includes even those Cretans who are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And maybe you have a category of person in our modern day culture. 
Only by God's grace can we as believers expect to function in the way that, that Paul describes here. But it's our duty to remember, to come back to these things and say, yes, this is my attitude toward outsiders. This is my attitude toward being a citizen and being one who interacts with those in the public square. And in light of that, we are to remember something else as well. We're to remember our depravity. Remembering your depravity will squash any feelings of spiritual pride or superiority that may be in you. Recalling what God has saved you out of, recalling who you were, who you were before Christ, man, it is crucial in in how we apply the gospel to life. Just as there were seven virtues in the list of duties, here are seven vices. We'll go through these really quickly. And this list of vices here, it may seem exaggerated, yet Paul describes unbelievers in this way in lots of places in the New Testament. We sometimes forget how great God's grace has been in our own personal situation, but that's why I like that Paul uses the pronoun we. We. He includes himself in the description. We were once foolish, he says. Which is to say, we were without spiritual understanding. Not only were we ignorant, we were incapable of understanding spiritual truth. There was no work of the Holy Spirit in us, no illumination of the Scriptures, no comprehension of the Gospel. Our foolish hearts were darkened, and our lives matched the conditions or the condition of our hearts. We were once foolish, then we were once disobedient. We were disobedient both to human and to divine authority. This is This is the mark of the unbeliever. Maybe not always disobedient, but inherently disobedient. Those of you with toddlers can testify to this, right? Inherently disobedient. You you don't have to teach them their disobedience. It just comes out of them. Then it says we were deceived. This picture's straying from the correct path by following by following false guides, false teachers. We were deceived. Before coming to faith in Christ, you believed the lies of the world. You believed the accusations of the devil. And this deception isn't just being on the wrong path. It's also being convinced that you're on the right path. So many believe that they are the enlightened ones. That they really are doing it the right way, yet they have bought into a lie. Then it says we were enslaved. Enslaved. Scripture, scripture clearly indicates that before salvation, a person is enslaved to sin. This means in bondage, which is to say we cannot escape sin. We cannot free ourselves. And in most instances, we don't even want to. We're chained to sin. It is the disposition of our hearts. Then it says malice. We were once malicious. This word denotes an evil disposition of the mind, perversity, wickedness. Malice is not only a moral deficiency, but malice destroys fellowship. It ruins relationship. It seeks to devour other people. To varying degrees, the unsaved spend their lives maliciously. And then six, to envy. Envy and jealousy are the driving factors in the life of an unbeliever. Proverbs 17.4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? What's the implication? What is even worse than wrath and anger? Envy is. 
In fact, envy often leads to wrath and anger. The last vice, hateful, hating one another. Sinners cannot stand each other. They're hateful, so they hate. And we need to remind ourselves of what we were. We need to remind ourselves of the track that we were on. Only when we truly believe that, apart from Christ, that there is no more hope of heaven for us than there is for the worst sinner that we can think of, only then are we really starting to grasp the gospel. Only then can we minister the gospel to others. By remembering our depravity. John MacArthur writes, We must look at the unsaved as Jesus did, and as he still looks at them now, with grief and tears over their lostness and a compassionate desire to see them repent, believe in Jesus Christ, and be saved. So we look at the lost and dying world not with condemnation in our eyes and in our hearts, but with deep compassion. Because that's where we were And that's where we would be without the grace of God. Just to conclude, remind you the purpose of this book. What's the purpose of this book? The book of Titus is is so that, that believers, so that Christians in Crete, and therefore through the generations now to us sitting here living in Enid, Oklahoma, that Christians would live lives that put the saving power and grace of Jesus on display. These words are here to remind us that the purpose of the Christian is not to reform government. It's not to change culture using positions of power and authority. You don't don't get to a godly society through through legislation or, or positions of power. The Christian is to proclaim the gospel and then adorn the gospel with how he or she lives their life. Pastor Tim Keller, he said, Jesus didn't come primarily to solve the economic, political, and social problems of the world. He came to forgive our sins, and that's what we're to be about. So all the noise and all the chatter and just the ambient arguing going on in our culture about government and politics and the presidency and whatever else, even in our own community, that going on as well. Pump the brakes. Look at how we're prescribed to live as model citizens and say, it's only the gospel. It's only the gospel that changed my heart. It's only the gospel that's going to change the hearts of those around me. It's only, therefore, the gospel that will turn a nation and a culture to Jesus Christ. And maybe you've never responded to the gospel. Maybe maybe you've never seen or or heard the truth about Jesus Christ in a way that has compelled you to say, you know what, I'm a sinner and I need my sins forgiven and Jesus is the only one who can do that. I invite you to do that today. To seek Jesus, to trust in Christ because of what he's done on your behalf, because he went to the cross for you and it's his work on the cross that is the only work that can save you. You don't get saved by being a good citizen. You get saved by the finished work of Christ, and that actually creates and makes you into the citizen that Paul's calling us toward here. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for your grace that empowers our hearts and lives to, to obey the commands that are in front of us here. We just confess together we need grace in these things. 
We can't do these things in our own strength and our own power. And, and nor can our culture, nor can our country and, and the condition that it's in be turned by government. It can only be turned by the message of the gospel, by the influence and ministry of the church, this church, churches in our community, churches in our state and around the country, God. We ask that they would rise up, that they would be full of citizens like this. Lord, we thank you for this time and this place, and and I thank you for this people who have gathered in your name. May you bless them as they look to Christ this week. It's in his name we pray. Amen.